Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 27th, 2017. On this week's show, Spencer Hall of SB Nation will join us to talk about the Alabama football team's loss to Auburn and Tennessee's move to hire Greg Schiano as its next football coach and then to unhire him after a fan revolt. Van Newkirk of The Atlantic will then join us to talk about the Alabama basketball team, which almost pulled off the most miraculous feat in modern sports history, staging a remarkable comeback while playing with three players against Minnesota's five. And finally, Bruce Arthur of the Toronto Star will chat with us about the Toronto Argonauts' snow-covered victory in that most Canadian of sporting events, the Grey Cup. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. I don't want to spoil anything, but there were no rouges in the Grey Cup final. All right. I just won't listen to that uh, segment of the show. Before we get started, I want to put in a quick word for a new Slate show, Slow Burn. It is a podcast about Watergate. It's hosted by Leon Nafak. I have been working on it with Leon, and I can assure you that it is awesome and that you will like it. If you know nothing about Watergate, if you know some stuff about Watergate, you will learn a lot and you'll get a sense of what it was like to live through it. The first episode is coming out this week on Tuesday, and you can listen to it and learn more at slate.com slash Watergate. We should also mention the fact that our former colleague, Mike Pesca, will be doing a live show for The Gist in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, November 28th. Slate.com slash live to get a ticket. On Saturday in Alabama, the homestanding Auburn Tigers handed the previously undefeated Alabama Crimson Tide their biggest regular season loss since 2010. The fact that they lost by just 12 points, 26 to 14, is a testament to how ridiculously world historically good Alabama has been under Nick Saban. And also it's worth noting that Alabama hasn't lost any game by more than two scores since 2004, <laughs> which was three years before Nick Saban got there. But also 
and this is weird, uh, Saban, the greatest non-fictional football coach of modern times, is now 0-7 against Auburn teams that have won nine or more games. And this particular Auburn team beat Alabama down. They ran, they passed, they special teams all over their rivals. They knocked Bama out of the SEC title game and possibly out of the college football playoff entirely. Spencer Hall of SB Nation was at Auburn for the game. And given that the students rolled Tumor's Corner with several metric tons of toilet paper, he is now likely more Charmin than man. Welcome, Spencer. Yeah, that was true before the toilet paper thing ever <laughs> happened. If we're being, you know, 100 about it. You're, you're squeezably soft? Uh, you know, genetically speaking, yeah. You know, there's some, there's a lot more muscle under there than it used to be, you know, but hitting the weight, CSEC, you got you to gotta prepare yourself for the rigors of life down here. But, you know. Genetically, yeah, we're two-ply. I am going to begin by taking my victory lap while Scott Cochran screams at Spencer for the next 15 minutes. Um, Because after the LSU-Alabama game, Stefan, I declared that Bama was sneaky bad this year, and this game provided me with the vindication I needed and deserved. This was the most routine Alabama loss in like a decade. There was not any way that Bama was going to win this game which is not a concept that we as a football-watching people really understand and are familiar with. I fully agree, and there have been signs that this team was weak in a way and exploitable in a way that other Alabama teams have not been. For instance, um, that injuries finally did catch up with them. It takes an extraordinary amount of injuries to actually dent this death chart, but it finally happened at linebacker, right? And when you run that defense, right, it's very dependent on having experienced linebackers who understand reads. For those who, who aren't familiar with it, one of the reasons Alabama's been so good is their defense. The defense is predicated mostly on pattern reading. They are a pattern reading, pattern match defense that requires a lot of like on-field knowledge, experience, and, and time learning what people are doing and what reads to make. For instance, to take you back to the game, you might remember Jared Stidham. You might remember the quarterback for Auburn, who was not exactly a running quarterback. He had 11 rushes for 50 yards, including a score. That never happens with an average quarterback who's not a rushing quarterback. Guys who can make extraordinary things happen with their feet, right? Bo Wallace. Bo Wallace. you got to give Bo Wallace his moment. (laughs) Listen, Bo Bo Wallace had some extraordinary moments of keeping plays alive. So did Chad Kelly. So did Jack Kelly for Ole Miss, right? They did a lot of things to pressure that defense. Uh, Jared Stidham, I don't think I put him even in that Bo Wallace category in terms of, of mobility. He just made the right read, and Alabama, for once, didn't, right? So Nick Saban will probably go back and look at this tape and say, man, there are a lot of little mistakes we usually don't make. And it's very hard to, to, to look at what happened to them and go, yeah, you know, that's, that's the result of – of, of coaching. Oh, man, it's just depth and experience, right? Auburn's a very experienced team, and they were better at the point of attack all night long. I'm a little confused about what this means and what will happen going forward. We have championship games in conferences next weekend, and then the, uh, the, 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 the trilateral commission will get together and decide who gets to play for the football championship in college. Um, is Alabama done? Well, remember, we can always make a bad choice. That's the committee and college football in general is pretty much a four-year-old, right? It it wants to make the right choice, but it doesn't even know the definition of the right choice always, right? Oklahoma can make it easier. Big marquee player, 
one loss to a pretty good team um, you know, earlier in the year. I always think you can excuse a loss if you're like, oh, it was at noon in a place that, you know, doesn't really have like a like more than it has like a single digit number of Starbucks in the whole city, right? Like you're referring to Ames, Iowa here. Sure. Sure. You know, a place that's like, you know, like the the nearest Ikea, like how far is the nearest Ikea? You're like, man, it's like 200 miles. Nah, it's probably in Des Moines, but might as well be 200 miles. No one knows where Ames is, right? That's the point. Oklahoma can make it easy. Um, I think that the ACC champion, ACC champion is going to have one loss therein, right? The Big Ten is where things sort of can get naughty because you have uh, a two-loss Ohio State team uh, that is going to play in the Big Ten Championship versus Wisconsin. Wisconsin, you really want Wisconsin to win this game if you want to make sure you get like an, a, a debate-free four. Because right now they're undefeated. And it's the kind of undefeated where if I told you, yeah, they win every game like 24-10. 24-13, 24-17, right? Uh, that's the kind of team that they are. They're not flashy. Uh, they're not really going to do a whole lot to impress you, but they're going to win every single time, right? Wisconsin getting in really keeps people from making up a whole lot of stuff and forcing people who aren't real good at debate to justify their arbitrary choices on television. The weird, really weird thing about this Alabama team beyond what you said um, about their look on the field is that, you know, it's a cliche about going through the rigors of the SEC, especially the SEC West, but they played a weak-ass schedule. All the teams in the SEC are bad uh, this well, year. And, and their out-of-conference schedule suffered. I think this is a very weird thing. They scheduled Florida State, which before the season, everybody thought, man, Florida State, Alabama, that's like a preview of a potential national title game. And Alabama beat them up so badly and injured their starting quarterback that it kind of set this like chain reaction through the entire Florida State program. They ended up with, with what, five wins and having to reschedule the Louisiana Monroe so they might be able to make a bowl game. Yeah. Like they, they essentially punctured the biggest balloon, giving them any lift in terms of a uh, strength of schedule. Then the rest of the schedule happened. The SEC West imploded teams. Uh, that were expected to be at least six or seven win teams, like strong resume points, were well, not that, right? And that's how you get to Mississippi State. Even when, you know, like Mississippi State being a big point on their resume, go back and look at that game. Alabama, another first. You're talking about how they haven't lost, for double, lost in double digits uh, since 2004. They, they allowed three rushing touchdowns in that game. Last time that happened was 2006, the year before Saban got there. So, so there's a lot of very obvious bullet points for, for people like you and I to throw out there to make a, a weak resume look even weaker circumstantially. It's not good for them at all. Yeah. I mean, you could even make the case that if Clemson lost to Miami, the two lost Clemson, which will have like five or six or seven wins that are better or just as good as Alabama's best win, should make it in over Alabama. Two lost TCU would have beaten Oklahoma, which is much better than anything that Alabama has done. The debates are going to be bad. And uh, I think that, you know, I think Alabama will probably uh, not make it in, but will make it in, is my guess. (laughs) Uh, It would be the the cheapest of skates, and they'll take it. We didn't even mention 
USC sitting out with, with two losses if they win the Pac-12, right? USC is sitting right there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have uh, you have a whole list of teams before we even get to mentioning someone like UCF out of the American, right? Who they'll be undefeated most likely. They can probably beat Memphis in the American title game. Um, there's there's a lot of teams that probably deserve that slot. The thing we might have working for us here is uh, everybody might point to Alabama and just go, nah, out of fatigue. It doesn't even seem plausible. We've just mentioned like nine different schools that are going to have either better records, better strength of schedules, or will be playing in a conference championship game before this is decided. They should all just forget that Alabama exists two weeks from now. Well, let's let's forget that Alabama exists for a second because we haven't really talked about Auburn. Um, Gus Malzahn, who is like fired by the Auburn fan base like seven times each season. Um, yep. He he mentioned after the game that like they beat two number one ranked teams, both of whom were their arch rivals. And it's not even, it's not possible to get theoretically even better than that. Oh wait, it could. So Auburn could now theoretically beat a third number one team, Clemson, in the playoff and do so while avenging one of its losses. They could also beat each of their main rivals twice if they beat Georgia in the championship game and if Alabama makes it into the playoffs. Um, And they could win the national title. And this would be the greatest season in sports history. And it would also be a season in which they lost to a team that lost to Troy. Let that sink in. Yeah. Yeah. And then they could cap it. With Malzahn going and taking the Arkansas job right after. <laughs> I almost hope that happens. I hope that they beat all of their major rivals twice. They win the national title with two losses, right? Which has only happened once before, really, in modern history since we started trying to do that. It's never then, happened without uh, Les Miles being involved. Correct, correct. So, like, did it even really happen? It's a legitimate question, right? About how we determine our realities. This was Les Miles involved. And then, Two days after they win the national title, Gus Malzahn's like, deuces, blue pig suey. <laughs> All right, let's do Shiano Ghazi. So on Sunday, it was reported by various outlets that Tennessee had hired a football man, Greg Shiano, known for turning around Rutgers, known for um, being around a large-scale MRSA infection, both uh, metaphorically and also, in, in uh, point of fact, when he was in Tampa Bay, he has since uh, been the defensive coordinator at Ohio State. Um, Tennessee was seemingly very psyched about having this guy uh, around, offered him a deal. And then on that uh, rock on the campus in Knoxville where they paint various slogans, someone painted, Shiano covered up child rape at Penn State, which is not generally a positive thing to have painted on a rock. Um, by the end of the day, the deal had been scuttled. Uh, the fans revolted. Um, Spencer, what am I missing here? What uh, what went down in Tennessee? I think what you're missing here is that this was a community's like universally like like appalled reaction to the suggestion of a hiring and a hiring that had suddenly gotten much farther along the road than anyone anticipated. Consider how most hires are done. There's usually a leak, a trial balloon, a little sort of hey, you know, like, you might want to consider this guy. That's what a lot of programs do when they're trying to sort of feel out how things go. If they don't outright do that in the media, then generally they're going to consult with their major boosters and say, how do you feel about this guy? Because, you know, you write checks, 
We like you to keep writing them. We like you to turn out, right? Uh, more importantly, you want people to actually fill the stadium and support the program, right? Be it, uh, you know, day tickets, you know, like day of game tickets. You want people to go to the games. You want people to engage with the program. So what I would ask anybody who had said, oh, man, this is just a like a social media mob, which should automatically raise red flags about the level of analysis you're getting here, okay? And I would go, you know, how did the community react to this even being an idea? They were universally repelled, appalled. But the thing that you really need to know about this, okay, before everyone goes, well, this inaccurate idea took this dude down. One, Greg Schiano is not entitled to anything. He is not entitled to anything. If you want some sort of, like, like little glimpse of the sickness of, like, like, absolute like authoritarian loving football culture okay it's that shiano came up and this entire canon of people just fell in line behind him like that's a good football guy give him the job he doesn't deserve the job what connection does he have he, you know what he won 11 games at rutgers once that happened good that was a substantial achievement he doesn't deserve it you know who might deserve it if you want to even get into deserve t martin T. Martin, a talented young African-American coach who, unlike Peyton Manning, won a national title at Tennessee. If you're I just want to break out into point, applause. This is great. I agree with you everything want, you're like, saying. Your baseline understanding, like the, the beginning of your PR campaign to win people over for this, right? Not get applause for your outstanding choice, mind you, okay? But to begin negotiations with the public was, first of all, about that child rape thing. That's a terrible starting point for a university that just had to pay out a massive settlement in a case with women and sexual assault at the university athletics like like program. That's that's your starting point. How tone deaf is that? And Let, that dude has to go out and hire a coach now. Let's be clear that the defense of Greg Shianu coming from members of the media, the establishment, doofus, football, fall in line media, people like Peter King and Pete Thamel. And who else did you say, Josh? Pat Forty. Dan Wolken. Dan Wolken. Um, yeah. It all seems to be predicated on the fact that Greg Shianu, who was named in a deposition – by former Penn State assistant coach Mike McQuarrie. The fucking star witness. Star witness. <laughs> yeah. Denied having, later denied having witnessed Jerry Sandusky with a boy. Let's in be some let's compromising be, position. Let's be 100% clear here. What was in the deposition was McQuarrie relating a conversation he'd had with another assistant, Tom Bradley, right. in which Tom Bradley told him, that Shiano had said to Bradley, I saw Sandusky with a boy in the shower. Now, Doing I understand, something with a boy. I understand why you wouldn't put Shiano in prison for that. It's hearsay. But like all these people like Wolken and Thamel and Dan Wetzel, who I think is awesome, but is like totally wrong in this case. They're like they're like prosecutors now. They're like magistrate judges. And like, why should we have the same standard of like, you know, <laughs> We don't have to hire this guy to be football coach at, at Tennessee. We don't need we don't have the same standard of evidence in football coaching hiring, you know, searches as we do in criminal proceedings. Right. So, these are a lot of the, these are a lot of the people too who will also confuse the NCAA's completely <laughs> opaque and arbitrarily chosen rule book as some sort of legal standard, right? The same right. people who would have been deeply concerned with Chip Kelly getting a job because he once had a show cause, right? Like Dan Wessel's forgotten more about sports writing than I'll ever know, right? But but that's wrong. Like, this is not... 
you don't have to be held to that standard. If Tennessee had gone into this and said, you know what, I don't want to consider this candidate from the start because he had something tangentially or was associated with this. That's fine. And that's just a that's starting point, Spencer. That's advisable. That's your, that's your starting point. That's the that's starting point. That's the starting point. So let's go from there. And as Barry Pacheski points out on Deadspin this morning in a very concise and well-argued piece, you start there and then you get to the point that this guy was hated everywhere he has worked. He has created toxic cultures. He was reviled. He was labeled an abuser of students during his tenure at Rutgers. Players in the National Football League when he was the head coach at Tampa Bay hated coming to work. I mean, look, NFL players hate coming to work anyway. But when you come out and say you hate coming to work because of the head coach, the head coach is a bully and an asshole. He was a bully and an asshole. And yet, for some reason, the new athletic director at Tennessee decides to quietly slip him a contract. This is so weird. It, it, gets, and it gets even weirder, too, when you consider this, that that he did that at Rutgers, right? And it took four years, by the way. So you think you think people are going to be real patient with that in Tennessee when he's like, hey, listen, I'm going to get you to seven wins in four years because that's how long it took in the old Big East. Okay, cool. You're in the SEC, and the last guy just got fired in that span of time. How'd that work out for you? No one even considers this, that the one thing you have to do is get people excited about the program, hire someone who can do the job, get butts in seats, get eyeballs on the TV, get recruits, into town. They just fired a guy who sounds a lot like Greg Schiano. They just fired a control freak with a square head and a bad haircut, right? Like that's, that's they're just hiring. Like, I mean, I said it on Twitter yesterday. It was like, they're like, Oh, let's just get the supersized Butch Jones. Let's get like that. That was, that was Coke zero. Let's just get the Coca-Cola original of Butch Jones. Let's just get Greg Schiano. Like it's so like my co-host on our podcast, Ryan nanny said, you know, like, there's no ability to read a room here. None. Absolutely none. Also, can I point out, bad head and a square haircut, too. <laughs> this true, is, true. Like, this, is my, this is my summation. A university hired a known asshole coach in secret to make him the probably highest paid, most, uh, you know, well-known, famous representative of the state slash public employee and like a bunch of people think the outrage is that fans got mad about it. <laughs> yeah. And this, that, that it was, it, can I tell you this? When, when Clay Travis and I are on the same side of an issue, you've messed up. <laughs> That's how you know you've messed up. Right. When like it's me, Clay Travis, Albert Hainsworth, right. I'd watch Every that show. Writer, yeah, sure. Like, like when all of these people—that's three fourths the of the way house. to a four-man bobsled team that I'd like to watch. <laughs> <laughs> a, 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 at least a twenty-five percent athletic bobsled team, right? Uh, with a lot of ballast. That—that that means you've messed up, right? Like at one point, you're so categorically wrong on something that you just have to wave the white flag. Which, to Tennessee's credit, they, they did do. around five o'clock yesterday. And somehow this is all going to end up with Alabama making it into the playoff. Spencer Hall of SB Nation, thank you so much. Thank you. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, 
and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. We're going to get to miraculous three-on-five college basketball in a moment. But before we do that, I want to mention that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to be talking about helmet-to-helmet hits in the NFL, the concussion protocol, um, and whether the league has made progress and what uh, else can and should be done. To hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. If you do, you can get a Slate tote bag plus bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every single week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. And now the question is, if you're, if you're Avery Johnson, do you keep going with three? I wish I, had an, I wish I had an answer for you. I really don't know what to say. Looks like they will. Alabama is playing three on five against Minnesota. On Saturday in Brooklyn, around the same time the Alabama football team was getting pounded into dust by Auburn, the Crimson Tide men's basketball team suffered what Nick Green described in Slate as the greatest loss in NCAA history. And this was no exaggeration. With 13 minutes and 39 seconds to go, the entire Alabama bench got ejected for running onto the floor to get involved in an on-court skirmish, leaving the five Bama players who were in the game as the only ones eligible to play for the rest of the second half. Two minutes later, one of those five fouled out. And a minute after that, another Alabama player rolled his ankle, leaving Alabama down by 13 with 10.41 to go and just three players on the court. I'm going to pull an upworthy and tell you that what happened next was truly inspirational. Joining us to discuss is Van Newkirk, a staff writer who covers politics and policy for The Atlantic and who hopefully will not turn an ankle during this segment because we're playing with three here. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Van. (laughs) Thanks for having me. All right, before um, we get to our conversation, back to the dramatic conclusion of our story. Let's return to the Barclays Center with just under two minutes on the clock. Alabama's outscoring Minnesota 24 to 16 with three players. Sexton the rebound. Here he comes. Sexton himself. Got it. It's a one possession game. A few seconds later, Alabama freshman Colin Sexton actually had a shot to cut the lead to one point but it fell off the rim. In the end, Minnesota won 89-84. Van, this was the craziest thing I've ever seen on a basketball court, and it's hard to think of anything that's even a close second. Yeah, I really can't. Um, the, the wildest thing to me was the fact that Bama was playing really good defense. You know, they were playing three-on-five defense, and they were. Uh, it was a weird triangle zone that they were trying out. I guess nobody practices a three-person defense. Um, but they made it work. And that, I mean, you know, I think Sexton was just pulling up and making impossible Hail Mary after Hail Mary, but uh, they should actually write books about that defense. I have this image of Alabama assistant coaches pulling up their iPads and frantically Googling <laughs> hockey 513 defending um, because they basically played a 2-1 and it kind of yeah. worked. 
It kind of worked. I think it kind of worked because because Minnesota was spooked because it's, you know, because it's intimidating. Like, oh, my God, we should be killing these guys. We have two more players than they do. We really don't know what to do now. Yeah, Minnesota. I, I mean, I know Richard Pitino said that it was just something you can't plan for, but it, I don't know. I've I played some uh, <laughs> ball on on uh, in the playground, and it, it's really not that hard. <laughs> I don't know how much planning you need to do. Well, I don't know. It's interesting because it became a mental challenge for Minnesota, clearly, and not a physical one. It turned into golf, basically. It was like they were coming down the stretch of a major with like a 10 shot lead and just started like spraying balls into the water. Like, because when you're moving, when you're running around, when you're playing any sport where there's motion, you just can't think too much because you're just like busy doing it and you've trained for it. But these, these dudes on Minnesota are just like passing the ball back and forth. They're like, should I shoot? Should I drive? Like, and I know Van, you're like praising the Alabama defense, but basically they were just daring them to shoot. And some Minnesota guys were taking the dare and failing. Some of them were just like passing it around. I mean, it. Patino was definitely uh, not a, not uh, lying when he said they hadn't pl- planned for it. It was very obvious watching. Yeah, I mean, definitely a lot of this is mental. You look at like, I don't know. You just think about, especially as it got closer, as it got closer, as it became clear that Sexton was going to hit every shot that he took. You know, you start thinking about what if we lose, um, and and then I can't even imagine when it gets to to within one, or we get within three, and then you start talking about okay, uh, you don't want to be on the wrong side of the worst loss like <laughs> in history, um, in basketball history maybe, and yeah, they were close, and I think the closer it got, you could see the tighter they got. Uh, the more they started just aimlessly passing the ball and shooting weird mid-range jumpers, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just, it, it's it's difficult to give that too much credence when it's five on three, man. <laughs> just, <laughs> just go to the rim. Uh, it certainly helped that one of Alabama's players was a probable future lottery pick, um, but even with that. What really struck me was how the announcers, and we heard this in the clip, kept wondering whether Avery Johnson was going to just quit, was just going to say, oh, we shouldn't, we should forfeit this game. We've only got three players. So well, when, I mentioned, when, I mentioned golf, but it's really like boxing, right? It's like you're in like the 10th round, you've been hit like 500 times in the head, and the announcers are like pleading with the corner guy to throw in the towel. And right. they've, and yet. But, but why? But why would you even think? I mean, you'd think that because it's not supposed to happen in basketball. I mean, yes, there are five on four and five on three, you know, or six on four, or six on three. When if you pull a goalie in hockey, happens rarely. There are man advantages in soccer when players get red carded. So I think it's the expectation. Obviously, it's the nature of the game too that doesn't lend itself to a, a man disadvantage. But it, you know, back to the psychological part, it's like nobody in their wildest imagination could sort of process what was happening. Yeah. I mean, and and you think about it, number one, it's not just, it wasn't just three on five. It was three on five plus a bench for one. And <laughs> right, also, right. I feel like the, the preceding weirdness gets lost in all this. Number one, Avery Johnson being in the middle of all this is, 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 is weird in itself. 
I just I feel like if you write this story and you say, okay, every Johnson is one of the coaches, that's that's where you jump the shark, right? <laughs> um, but also, I mean, the fact that a whole bench got ejected, like that's that's not normal. I don't even, has that ever happened before? Has that part ever happened before? I can't recall that ever happening in the in the pros or in college. And that's a great point. It's not just that it was five on three on the court. Like the announcers kept saying, um, you know, like. Sexton has his hands on his hips. Sexton can't really can't move. Sexton might die out on the court. And the the other like weird thing you mentioned jumping the shark. The fact that this game was exclusively on Facebook that you could like only watch only watch this like alongside your like you know cousins Thanksgiving pictures. Um, that just like made this <laughs> even like extra strange. Um, so Chuck Klosterman back. In 2011, when Grantland was launching, you wrote for Grantland Van. Like um, this was this piece that the Klosterman wrote about a three-on-five game in uh, North Dakota in 1988. It was like one of the first pieces that Grantland ever published. It was sort of like a mission statement or statement of purpose for the site. It was like we're going to excavate these like amazing sports narratives and. The like reason this was an amazing sports narrative is that a team played three on five for a minute, sixty six <laughs> seconds. When I came to the sixty six seconds part of the story, I was like, "What? We're going to need like a four hundred page book about this game." Right. I mean, I don't know. It's just, is it? Can you do a thirty for thirty on this? Like, I just, what is the? Are there any comparisons? It's just the weirdness here. And there. Like you said, Facebook. And there's just a, that adds to the legend of it because people were just, I, I was just on Twitter hearing about this guy Sexton. Okay, he has 30 points. Well, let me check in. Okay, now I'm, I'm on Facebook and I see this guy. I'm looking, where are the rest of his team? <laughs> and <laughs> he's pouring sweat. And really, if you go back and watch it, he is about to die on every <laughs> single bucket. Like, you expect him after making these incredible, ridiculous pull up threes, triple teamed, that one, he's just going to stop. And, you know, what do you do? do you, you you can't sub anybody in. Do you just go two on five for a little bit, give them some rest? Like, it's there came a point when they were just walking the ball up the floor and he was just launching and making it. Yeah, there's kind of like a, a strange connection between, like, major college sports here. Like, these are teams are both in the top 25. They'll probably both be in the tournament. Sexton's an NBA player. And, like, something you would see in, like, Class C basketball in Nebraska or, like, something that would make you a legend and you would, like, tell people in a bar 50 years later and they wouldn't believe you that it actually happened. It's just – I mean, I guess the other comparison that comes to mind is that game when uh, Steph Curry was at Davidson and it was – I think they were playing Loyola of Maryland. And And they they just five on one defense. (laughs) <laughs> they they put two guys on him the entire game, even when he was just standing on the corner in the corner, and so Davidson played the entire game four on three, and uh, Steph like didn't score the whole game, and it was just like a stunt, and it was like terrible to watch, and <laughs> there wasn't anything really fun about it. The difference here was, I mean, we wouldn't we probably wouldn't be talking about this if Minnesota had done what they should have done and just, like, run up the lead, I mean, I guess it would have still been a curiosity. But it was, like, the combination of this thing never happening and then 
Alabama overcoming like the longest odds that you could possibly imagine. Right. And already, you know, they were the underdog in the matchup in the first place. So it, it's just a whole lot. Like, I don't know. Um, it seems like it was scripted in a way. It, it, you have the remarkable, improbable comeback. I mean, this is like an Air Bud movie. <laughs> it's like the, the, the sixth man or something. There was, there was some magic at work here that just brought all the storylines together, all the threads together to make this. Like, there, there's no way somebody isn't in Hollywood right now, like, making a script about what happened in that game. This just in? I got to page nine of my Google search for entire bench ejected. And just this past January, the uh, Louisiana Tech Bulldogs played the final six minutes of the game with just four players after their entire bench was ejected for walking on the court during a brawl. And they probably didn't make a miraculous comeback? They did not. They Uh, were losing and they were still losing at the end. Let's point out that this can't happen in the NBA. Because you have to have five players on the court. And even if a player is teed up and thrown out of the game, the play can't continue with fewer than five players. So there was a game in 2010 involving the Warriors and the Blazers in which, because of injuries, the Warriors got down to five players and then Devin George fouled out, went to the bench, and they made... The Warriors, the refs made the Warriors put one of the injured players on the court and Don Nelson subbed him out and then another injured player went on and he got subbed out. And once they exhausted the supply of injured players, they were allowed to put George back in the game, even though he had already fouled out. So that's what happens in the NBA. Huh. Alabama should have been forced to put the guy who rolled his ankle, just sit him in, at midcourt as like a cone. <laughs> Just like an obstacle or in the middle jo- of the court? Avery Johnson should have been allowed to play. Has he Avery, exhausted I think we should put fans in. Fans would bring fans too. down. Yeah. yeah, like have a lotto, bring two fans in and suit them up. I guess this isn't like super surprising given what we know about college coaches. But my big disappointment here, like Patino did an on-court interview after the game with Facebook um, and <laughs> was was like, yeah, this was really weird. And you know, he wasn't too hard on his guys for like almost playing the lead because he's like, this is just a strange aberration and I'm happy with how we played before things got all screwy. But then after the game, like it seemed like Avery Johnson, A, wasn't like super happy with like his three guys. He just said, you know, this he said like vaguely positive stuff about, you know, the lesson we can learn is when we have five guys on the floor, we could use that same kind of energy like, OK, um, but he like had no sense of humor about it or, you know, he didn't know that this was like a miraculous thing. And like he didn't appreciate the moment. He didn't appreciate the moment. And it's just that to me. Well, what? I don't know. So as a coach, you know, how you how you got to that moment was the entire bench got ejected for leaving <laughs> the, the bench for a fight. That, that's enough for me to everybody's running the next practice. And then even before the ejections, like I think he was right about it. They they played pretty lackluster basketball before that. I think if if if, if I'm Avery Johnson, I'm not taking a stock of this weird outcome and giving my team credit for it because it's really the team's fault they were in that position in the first place. Yeah, I can see him not sort of appreciating the whimsy of the moment. 
<laughs> when the entire bench <laughs> and nobody even really fought. Like it and was, yeah, it was before that. Yeah. I disagree. Got to appreciate the. This is like the most whimsical <laughs> moment to ever happen. Like no rules apply at that point. You just got to like stand up and and in your squeaky Avery Johnson voice, just be like. That was awesome. Like I'm glad all of my players got ejected. Just it's it's like an amnesty. Like anything that happened beforehand is just like immediately wiped out by just the the miracle of what we saw. We forgot to mention that Rick Pitino was in the stands, <laughs> so he'll get to watch right. a lot of his son's games this year. Good for him. We also didn't mention. My last thought is that Vivek Ranadive, the owner of the Kings, was like almost laughed out of the NBA for suggesting that maybe possibly it would be interesting to see his team try to like play four on five defense and just like leave someone back for uh, cherry picking. Maybe the, maybe the dude was right. Or maybe he should have suggested playing three on five defense. Or maybe they should just play Colin Sexton. <laughs> That's probably a good, good way to, to leave the conversation. Van Newkirk uh, writes about politics and policy uh, for the Atlantic. He is also our weird basketball correspondent here on uh, the Hang Up and Listen show. Van, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. As with most of my Canadian football watching experiences, I stumbled onto the 105th Grey Cup championship game on Sunday night. I was clicking through the ESPNs and saw heavy snow falling and plowed yard lines, and that was all it took. And even though no rouges were scored, the Toronto Argonauts' 27-24 win over the Calgary Stampeders was right up there both in terms of Canadiana and sports watching fun. Our friend Bruce Arthur, sports columnist for the Toronto Star, was at the game, which was played in Ottawa. He is now in Calgary. You move fast. Hey, Bruce. Gentlemen, great to talk to you. All right, before we get to Shania Twain, sled dogs, and Mounties, let's talk about the game, because the game was actually a really exciting game, and it reminded me how entertaining and wide-open, three-down, pass-happy Canadian football can be. I think the second play from scrimmage that I saw was a 100-yard touchdown pass. This was a good game. Yeah, and it was a strange game, which is, like, some snow games are, are pure comedy, they're pure farce that you just watch them and, and you laugh for a few hours. But no, no great football actually gets played. This one had the snow and had all the funny things to go along with the snow before we get to Shania. And then it had some plays in it. Like the 100-yard catch, that's the longest touchdown pass in Grey Cup history. And that was, that was incredible. Perfect pass, perfect catch, everything. And then the play that truly turned the game was a 109-yard fumble return at a point in the game where you figured Calgary, it was Calgary St. Peter's and the Toronto Argonauts, who were the underdogs, where Calgary was driving to put the hammer down, and all of a sudden the game changed. This, like, there were Argonauts players after the game, after they won 27-24, looking up at the scoreboard and going, I don't know how we did that. And anytime you can get that, plus it, it was a very Canadian game in that like the last five minutes, usually it's the last two or three minutes, but the last five minutes, the game was essentially decided then, which because of the way Canadian football works is kind of a staple of the league. It was a very Canadian night. 
It's funny, Stefan, that you mentioned stumbling across the game on ESPN, because what I was going to say is that I have a theory that it's actually illegal um, if you live below the 49th parallel to have advanced knowledge of the Grey Cup and when it's going to happen. The only way to know that it's on is to stumble across it on ESPN2 via simulcast of TSN. Um, But you can really enjoy and absorb this game as an American as just this one-off snow game spectacle, and it was exciting down to the last moments. But as you wrote in your gamer, Bruce, there is like deep (laughs) meaning like in this game if you are Canadian and have followed – these teams and like, you know, Calgary and like all of the travails that they've gone through and like Ricky Ray and Bo Levi Mitchell. It's like you are like certainly missing something if you just tune in by accident and watch the second half, just like almost like epic storylines going into this game. Yeah. Well, so if if you back up just with Calgary, Calgary is an immensely successful program. Nine of the last 10 West finals, they've been in them. And they have half as many great cups as their rivals from Edmonton. They're known as a franchise, which year, like, it has so many episodes of what, I mean, I guess the lazy sports writer would call choking, and some players would call choking over the years. Last year, they had one of the greatest teams in CFL history. They only lost one game that they were trying to win in the regular season. They lost that game by two points. And then they were nine-point favorites in the great cup, and they lost in overtime to a 40-year-old quarterback who then retired, Henry Burris. So they come in this year, and they're still the best team in the league. Not quite as great a record, but they were the best team in the league. They're a seven-point favorite. And so the last two years, seven-point favorite, nine-point favorite, and they lose this game. And this was the one where, like, and last year, Ottawa jumped out ahead, and Calgary clawed back and couldn't get all the way back. And they could tell themselves, and they did, that, you know, we got outplayed a little bit. We didn't do our best. We weren't our best. In this game, they were in control of this game up until the last five minutes. And then it all happened so fast. The, the fumble return for a touchdown, a two and out for Calgary. Toronto drives, kicks a field goal, and Calgary still has a chance to win the game. And Bo Levi Mitchell, who's still the best young quarterback in the league, a really, really interesting guy, I wrote about him this week, throws into double coverage in the end zone, and that's the ball game. One of the things I love about Canadian football is hearing the names of American college football players <laughs> whose names that I had long ago forgotten. I love sort of Googling these guys and discovering, oh, he was a starter for Ole Miss or he was a third round draft pick. Um, and the guy you mentioned who returned the 109 yard uh, uh, fumble return was Cassius Vaughn. He went to Ole Miss. He's a third generation Cassius, and he's named Cassius because his grandfather was supposed to fight Cassius Clay. The guy that scored the 100-yard uh, reception touchdown, Devere Posey, and was the Grey Cup MVP, he was a third-round draft pick out of Ohio State. He played a season with the Texans. He was cut by the Jets and the Broncos. But here he is praising God and the equipment manager for changing the length of their studs at halftime and totally buying into Canada. You know, these guys fall in love with being in the CFL and being on this team. And here's what he said in the, uh, on the interview right after the game. We chose love all year. We had bad losses. Tressman came in and loved on us. He never ripped us. And love prevails. Love always wins, man. There is something so Canadian that happens to these players when they go north of the border. I don't know what it is, Bruce. The thing with this is we all know a lot about football. We all know a lot about how brutal this game is. We know how the idea of family is football is largely a myth in the NFL. Talk to these Toronto Argonauts. And again, a lot of these guys have been discarded other places. Mark Tressman is 
when he was in Chicago, didn't work out, never hit your, your wagon to Jay Cutler is probably the lesson there. But he came back, and he never raises his voice. He insists that they play edited rap during practices. He just kept believing in these guys. And the, what, what he tried to teach them was, and, and got all, different guys would tell me this all week, it was never about hating the opponent. It was never about anything other than loving each other. And like block harder for him, work harder for him, work harder for each other. And these guys, they all treated him like a father figure by the end. And so when Devere Posey says that, and he was like even Ricky Ray, a guy who's 38 years old, been in the league a long time, he was saying this stuff. This team, it sounds so hackneyed to even say it, but they credit a lot of their success to how much they loved each other in that room. And we've heard that from places all over, but damned if it didn't seem true. Because, again, this team, this team doesn't have the support, really, of the city. In a city of 5 million, to get under 14,000 in a new building, in a good building to watch football, is embarrassing. Um, and a lot of these guys, again, had been a lot of places, but they really believed this. I would actually find being forced to listen to clean versions of rap songs at practice to be extremely demotivational, but maybe that's <laughs> why I'm not a Canadian football star. So you said in your column that it can be a cliche to call things Canadian, but you acknowledged that it was a very Canadian game. And Stefan mentioned the Shania Twain entrance on sled dogs. I have to imagine that whoever choreographed that, you have to be like, conscious of what it is that you're doing like that cannot be like a sincere effort to just be you know what like this is a this is what i i think uh we should do is have shania twain on a, on a sled dog you have to be conscious that like you are doing this because people are going to watch and be like that is the most canadian thing that i've ever seen in my life and it's and everyone wrote it up it like seems to have worked it worked and they also have the mounties carrying the gray cup and one of the announcers when they cut to a a, a shot of these guys walking down the tunnel with the trophy said i get shivers every time i see it walking into the stadium well the the mounties we always have and that's true like that's actually a moment the mounties bringing in the gray cup if you've ever watched this game you'll remember that um, the Shania Twain thing, you're right. It cannot be wholly unironic, <laughs> but we do tend to do this in Canada. Like sometimes Canada plays up to its stereotypes and it can be cringe inducing because we're, we're, we're a much more dynamic and multicultural kind of country, I think, than we tell ourselves and uh, the, the myths we kind of tell ourselves. But so this reminded me a little bit, if you remember the closing ceremony and the opening ceremony of the 2010 Olympics, this was a big moment mm-hmm. for Canada. The closing ceremony, the opening ceremony had one of the most Canadian things ever. And this was not meant to be ironic, which is that we put Wayne Gretzky in the back of a pickup truck with the Olympic torch in the rain to drive the torch from the stadium to the onsite where they had the other torch. And it was Wayne Gretzky holding onto the roll bar of a pickup truck getting chased by yahoos on bikes carrying the Olympic torch. That, for my money, is as Canadian a moment as you can ever find. Uh, the closing ceremony was we had Anne Murray, people. one of the people who was on a bike. <laughs> Anne Murray was not part of that ceremony. Actually, that was a bit of an oversight. Um, but in the closing ceremony, there was the whole "we're going to make fun of ourselves" thing. So giant inflatable beavers and giant uh, like table hockey figures and and giant mounties and all that kind of stuff. And it was 
okay, people seem to enjoy it. I, I, I thought it mostly looked like we ran out of money, frankly. But this was, like the thing with Shania Twain, too, is she's been kind of forgotten a little bit because remember she had her voice problems. She was gone for a long time. She's just coming back now. And she is Canadian she for American <laughs> country music fans who may not realize that. And very Canadian. Like she would, was raised in a tiny town called Timmins. Uh, her father, her stepfather was actually uh, First Nations. And she was like, she was a Canadian royalty. She really was. She's one of the biggest international stars we've ever created. And I think people were really genuinely happy to see her again, even if you didn't really care for Shania Twain's music. And it was a fabulous halftime show. And she didn't fall, which was important because those were slippery stairs she was walking up and down. She was a gamer. Um, no, she was a total gamer. It was snowing at halftime, and she sang right through it. So props to Shania Twain. She, she was not singing, to be clear. <laughs> no. There was major li- lip syncage involved. But she put on a show. And one thing with the, with the funny thing about the Grey Cup halftime show, if you look back, more than once the Grey, ta- Grey Cup halftime show has then become the Super Bowl halftime show. It happened with the Black Eyed Peas. I believe it happened. Justin Bieber was involved with one. We have, strangely in this country, booked acts occasionally for Grey Cup halftime that then went on to the really big show. I don't think Shania Twain's going to do a Super Bowl halftime show anytime soon. But if she did, you could bet it wouldn't look anything like that. Bruce Arthur is a columnist for the Toronto Star and a man seeped in all things Canadian. Bruce, thanks a lot for coming on the show. My pleasure, guys. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And now it is time for After Balls. And Josh, I want to pay homage to a kicker. He's the kicker that kicked the winning field goal in the Grey Cup. He wore number 70 on his jersey. A little weird for a kicker. Say no more. He's Canadian. Not some American import, not some flashy American kicker gone north of the border. His name is Liram Hirolahu. He was born in Kosovo and fled with his mother and father and two sisters to Canada as a refugee in 1999. Um, And he did an interview recently in which he was asked, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? And Hirolahu chose invisibility which I thought was an interesting answer. Yeah. You know, kicker by nature is invisible and should be invisible. So I, I, I tip my hat to Liram Hiralahu. Stefan, what is your Liram Hiralahu? Well, the Penn men's basketball team is off to a nice start, Josh. On Saturday night, the Quakers beat mighty Monmouth by the very high score of 101 to 96. How did that happen, you might ask? Well, they played four overtimes. Four a lot of overtimes. And because I follow the official Penn basketball Twitter feed and the Daily Pennsylvanian Sports Department Twitter feed, I became aware of this game in the second overtime, which ended with a putback dunk by a Penn player. The DP at this point is all capsing, more free basketball, oh my goodness, instant classic. And I am thoroughly enjoying this when with Penn up 85-84 in the third OT, the updates suddenly stop, the Wi-Fi in the Monmouth gym 
has apparently crashed. So I go to the Penn website and I discover that the game is actually streaming on ESPN. But of course, it's not streaming because the Wi-Fi has crashed. (laughs) About 10 minutes later, the Wi-Fi returns, but the ESPN stream says the game is over. Either it was programmed to end at a certain time or no one rebooted it after the malfunction because Penn Monmouth, who really cares? So all, back, all games need to be live on Facebook. We that would is not, the answer. We would not have this problem. All right, so I go back to the Twitter feed. In its first tweet back, the DP reports that Penn is up 89-86 with 11.7 seconds left in the game. The Penn basketball feed goes silent again. It says the Wi-Fi is again out in the gym and it can't get a hotspot to work. But the plucky undergraduates on my school paper managed to tweet right through it. They report that the same Monmouth player who hit a tying bucket in the last seconds of regulation hits a 30-footer with 0.4 second to go and it's on to quadruple overtime. Yeah, Monmouth Hawks YouTube account has a video of this. I am going to provide the pro-Monmouth perspective here. Austin Tillman was the guy who had two buzzer beaters. Um, Let's listen to a clip of this uh, one from Triple Overtime. Tillman, three seconds left. Tillman for the tie again. He knocked it down again! We're tied at 89 with four tenths of a second... So you heard the audio, but let me provide the picture. He's like fading a little to the left. He's like a veritable Colin Sexton out there for Monmouth. Maybe Monmouth should have played with three players, Josh. They go up five in the fourth overtime, but Penn scores the game's final 10 points. The DP pumps out a quick recap, and kudos to the DP because readers like me needed something at that moment. And also for the excellent full gamer, which begins... You could call it ugly. You could call it poorly officiated. You could call it the game that broke the internet, literally. But there's one alias you can't even question about it, Game of the Century. That's a nice lead by Cole Jacobson and William Snow. If they are like other DP sports writers, Josh, they have bright futures in journalism. Game of the Century, guys? Sure, why not? Because Penn had last played a four-overtime game almost 100 years earlier. The date was March 13, 1920, and the game was played in Waitman Hall on the Penn campus because this was seven years before the famed Palestra would open. It was the final game of the regular season, and Penn was either 18-0 or 19-0. College basketball was only 25 years old. Scores in those pre-shot clock days looked like elementary school basketball scores today. Penn's highest point total that season to date was 45. It beat Cornell by scores of 23 to 13 and 20 to 15. But still, you'd figure the Princeton game, four overtimes, a full hour of basketball, would have been a record setter. It was not. The score was 17 to 17 at the end of regulation, then 20 to 20, 22 to 22, and nobody scored in the third overtime, 22-22 still. In those days, subs weren't allowed to return to the game, and that apparently was the key in the fourth OT. The Princeton Alumni Weekly reported that Penn starter Rosenast no first names, came out for Zucker, but Zucker, quote, apparently was suffering from a weak stomach and he soon gave up the ghost, etc. It was a stormy night, as we all know, and to Zucker, the floor of Waitman Hall must have seemed very like below decks on a small cross-channel boat. Wow. That is some sports writing right there. 
All right, so Zucker, who I think we can assume puked, came out of the game and he was replaced by Hunzinger, an untried substitute, according to the Pennsylvania Gazette, Penn's weekly magazine. So Hunzinger comes on. He scores the decisive bucket in the 26-23 to victory. The Princeton Weekly writer Donald Grant Herring concluded that, quote, All with a long experience of intercollegiate league basketball with whom I have talked unite in describing as the greatest game they ever saw. How it was possible for the members of the two teams to keep going at top speed for so long is almost inexplicable, but everyone who saw the game will testify that the speed of the play was never relaxed. All right, a couple of postscripts here, Josh. One is that a Princeton player nets, quote, through no less than three separate field goals, all of which were disallowed because a pen player fouled him as he was in the act of throwing, end quote. That was Herring in the uh, Princeton Alumni Weekly, biased, of course. He went on, this is one feature of the rules that I have never been able to grasp. I think that in cases such as this, the field goal should count if made, and then the side offended against be given, in addition, the chance to shoot a foul goal, and I would humbly propose that this action be called an and one. All right, I made up the and one part, of course. But while I say tough shit, Princeton, Fedora's off to Donald Grant Herring for the prescient basketball rules analysis. Postscript two is that the Quakers went on to beat the University of Chicago in what looks to have been a three-game national championship playoff and repeated as national champs the next season. As we sing, Josh, hurrah, 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 hurrah. Hurrah for the red and the blue. Josh, what's your lyrum hirelahu? I'm going to lean into this whole Canadian football situation that we have going on this week and talk about Bernie Custis. He died earlier this year at age 88. He's touted as the first black quarterback in professional football, which is an arguable distinction. Dead spends mammoth and excellent big book of black quarterbacks, cites Fritz Pollard and Joe Lillard and George Talaferro, all of whom played quarterback-like roles. But Custis was inarguably a signal caller, and he was drafted out of Syracuse by the Cleveland Browns in 1951, as was the case with so many black quarterbacks who came after him. The Browns wanted him to change positions. Here is a clip of Custis from 2008. This is from the CBC radio program, Sounds Like Canada. And I was under the impression that I was going to be going to uh, training camp uh, to compete for the quarterback position. But once I got to uh, training camp, I was told that I was uh, going to be competing for a free safety position and that quarterback competition was not open to me. Well, I balked to a degree. Brown's coach and Brown's owner, Paul Brown, let Custis go on the condition that he not sign with another NFL team. He went to Canada, where he played quarterback for the Hamilton Tiger Cats in the Interprovincial Rugby Football Union, which later became part of the Canadian Football League. Here is Custis again telling the CBC his first memory of Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. So I was able to catch a a train, and it put me into uh, Hamilton at about 2 o'clock in the morning. Well, I had an address of a rooming house, and I went there, and I was hoping to get some sleep and report to the Tiger Cat office the following morning. 
But the experience I had in this room was one I'll never forget because, you know, I experienced probably the worst-smelling feet that I'd ever experienced, and they weren't my feet. There was someone else in the room. And that guy here, you laugh. <laughs> and uh, it, it made me rise, and I walked the streets in Hamilton until about uh, 8 o'clock the next morning. I drank a, a bit of coffee. I was a teetotaler at that time. And uh, until the TICAD office opened, and, of course, when I went in, I'd, I had already made a demand that I find another place that I could stay. Custis overcame those feet to lead the Ticats to a 7-5 and five record in 1951. They lost to Ottawa 11-9 to nine in the playoffs, maybe a scorigami. Uh, despite being named an all-star, he was then inevitably moved to running back, where he played for Hamilton in the team's 1953 Grey Cup victory. Custis wasn't happy about the move, as he told the CBC, but there wasn't much he could do about it. I balked a, a bit, but um, I decided to go along with it because, you know, really, at that point in time in my life and career, if I didn't agree to switch position, what opportunities would I have elsewhere, even at quarterback? After his football career, Custis became a coach and an elementary school principal. And everyone who's written about him testifies to his kindness and his humility, which really comes through in those clips we heard. I wish we had a chance to chat with him before he died. Let's do the next best thing, Stefan, and implore you, podcast listeners, to remember Bernie Custis. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and Bernie Custis. And thanks for listening. And a little bit after the credits, it occurs to me, maybe email us at hangupatslate.com if you do, in fact, remember Bernie Custis if you're a Canadian and have some Bernie, Bernie Custis memories to share. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement, 
and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 